If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Before being scattered across different kingdoms, Catherine de' Medici, Elizabeth de Valois and Mary, Queen of Scots, spent many of their formative years at the French royal court. Leia Redmond Chang explores the connections between these three extraordinary Renaissance women in a new book, Young Queens, and Lauren Good spoke to her to find out more. Hi, Leia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Lauren, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We're talking today about your brilliant new book, Young Queens, Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power, which covers the intertwined lives of three 16th century queens, Catherine de' Medici, Elizabeth de Valois and Mary, Queen of Scots. What brought you to tell the stories of these three women? Well, I started out with Catherine. A few years ago, I had written a a book with a colleague about Catherine de' Medici. I was always interested in her because Catherine de' Medici has something of a bad girl reputation. Uh, She's known as the evil queen, the serpent queen, but I'm always interested in these sorts of bad girls' reputations uh, because they seem rather flat. And I was much more interested in the uh, complex portrait of Catherine. And that's partially because if you're studying the 16th century, and particularly 16th century France, you can't avoid her. She's everywhere, particularly in the second half of the the 16th century. So I started off uh, with writing that book and then wanting to know more. As I was working on that book on Catherine, I noticed the correspondence that she had with her daughter, Elizabeth de Valois, and it was a little bit one-sided. We had a lot of letters by Catherine, but few responses by Elizabeth. So I went to France, I dipped into the archives, trying to find out more, and when I did discover the letters from Elizabeth, I was really surprised to see how young she was. 
So I had known a little bit about Elizabeth de Valois. I knew that she was married to the King of Spain as a teenager, a very young teenager, about 13 years old. But that's that's about all I knew. It seemed like the history stopped there. So when I discovered these letters uh, by Catherine to Elizabeth and the responses, I could see, first of all, how strong that mother-daughter connection was, but how needy Elizabeth was um, for her mother's guidance. So I wanted to explore that a little bit more. But as I was perusing that correspondence, I noticed that not only Catherine and Elizabeth, but also members of Elizabeth's entourage, her ladies-in-waiting and um, some ambassadors and diplomats in her circle, were writing to Catherine in these very cryptic ways about this one particular person. And I, and I couldn't figure out who the person was. They kept referring to this person as the gentleman. But as I was sitting there in the library and going through the letters, I realized that the person that they were talking about was Mary, Queen of Scots. This brought me back into the context at the royal court in France. I knew that uh, Mary had grown up with Elizabeth of Valois. And of course, Mary, Queen of Scots was Catherine de' Medici's daughter-in-law. But I hadn't realized that Catherine and Elizabeth were united in plotting against Mary, Queen of Scots in various different political shenanigans. So that's what really hooked me. And I wanted to explore the relationship between these three women, particularly during the lifespan of Elizabeth de Valois, because Elizabeth died very young. So that gave me a very contained number of years to explore how those relationships played out. But then as I dug further, what really struck me, and which is really at the heart of the book, is that um, even though these women and girls really start off in the same place at the French court in mid-16th century, they fan out into different kingdoms. Elizabeth ends up in Spain, Catherine remains in France, and Mary, Queen of Scots, eventually goes back to Scotland. And yet the types of challenges they faced despite being in different kingdoms with different political and religious contexts, uh, different customs, different languages, the challenges that they faced were often quite similar. And it seemed to boil down to both youth, the fact that especially Mary and Elizabeth were quite young, and gender, the fact that they're both women. And let's begin with Catherine de' Medici. Could you please provide a brief summary of her life before she arrived at the French court? Catherine arrives at the French court when she's 14 years old. But before that, she actually has a very tumultuous childhood in Italy between Florence and Rome. So Catherine is born to the Medici. She's actually the only heir to the senior line of the Medici. Her great-grandfather is Lorenzo uh, the Magnificent, who ruled over Florence in the 15th century. Her father is Lorenzo II uh, de' Medici, and her mother is Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne, who's actually a French noblewoman uh, who's related to the French royal family, the House of Valois. Catherine is orphaned uh, within a few weeks of her birth. Her mother dies from complications of childbirth, and her father dies a few weeks afterwards 
from an unknown illness, although most scholars suggest that it was probably syphilis. And there are, in fact, indications that Lorenzo was ill already at the time of his wedding. So she's orphaned um, within a few weeks. She goes to live with her grandmother, and eventually she ends up in Rome with her aunt, Clarice Strozzi. An important thing to know about Catherine is that her uncles are both successively uh, popes, uh, Medici popes. So first we have Leo X, who was the pope when Catherine was born, and uh, soon thereafter her cousin, Clement VII becomes Pope. He's actually her cousin, but he liked to call himself her uncle. So Catherine spends a bit of her childhood in Rome. We don't know much about her then, but by the time she's seven, she is back in Florence with her aunt, Clarice Strozzi. And she lives through a really tumultuous time, both in Rome and in Florence. So in 1527 is the sack of Rome. And at that point, her uncle, cousin, Clement VII, is held a hostage in Rome while the troops of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain, pillage and plunder Rome. And at the same time, the Florentines take it upon themselves to rise up and riot against Medici power. And they succeed in ousting Medici deputies from Florence and form what is called a Republican Council. At that point, the Republican Council finds Catherine, who's in hiding with her aunt, Clarice, and takes her hostage. And the reason why they're doing this is they want leverage. They want leverage against Clement VII, mobilizing armies against Florence. They take Catherine and they put her in a series of convents. She ends up in this one Benedictine convent called Le Murate. It's a convent of cloistered Benedictine nuns, and she stays there for three years. And in some ways, even though she's a hostage, and Catherine was very much made to feel like a hostage by the Republican Council in Florence, these are actually quite happy years because the Benedictine nuns really take very good care of her. Uh, this is really interesting. We don't have much of a window into her life there, but um, it seems from the testimony that we do have that the nuns who were quite factionalized in terms of whether or not uh, they supported the council or the Medici, they were able to put aside their differences for the sake of this little girl because she's only eight, nine, 10 years old. They seem to like her very much. And forever after, Catherine maintains this a, a very strong relationship with these nuns um, in Le Morate. But eventually, the Florentine um, council is defeated by Clement. He moves in. The Medici are restored. And at that point, uh, Catherine is about 11 or 12 years old. She uh, goes back and lives under the protection of her uncle in Florence and then in Rome. And soon thereafter, he organizes her marriage to Henry, the Duke of Orléans, who is the second son of the French king, Francis I. And she's married um, eventually at the age of 14 and moves to France. And what was Catherine's experience of this earlier period of her marriage to Henry? 
Well, it it wasn't great. <laughs> it was actually terrible. It was terrible for her. I mean, there was a lot, first of all, that she had to get used to. She does not come from uh, a childhood in the court, and the French court is enormous. It's very glittering. It's quite political. It's quite clicky, and so she has to get used to that. But the biggest challenge that she has is that Henry, who who luckily for Catherine is about her age, he's only 14 years old, but he wasn't really that interested in getting married to her. This is a political alliance. It's, it's done completely for politics. He's very polite to Catherine, but he's not that interested in her as a person. He's an athlete. He'd rather be on the pitch, on the tennis court, than spending time with his wife. In addition, Henry also had a very troubled boyhood. He doesn't get along with his father at all. And I think that he sees this marriage as very much his father's doing in which he is just upon. So there's there's already a, a little bit of distance, a kind of um, friendly civility, but not much more between Henry and Catherine, even though Catherine, um, she really does seek out Henry's affection. And one of the imbalances in this marriage is that Catherine seems to love Henry much more than Henry loves Catherine. The other big elephant in the room is that Henry is um, quite devoted to another woman, and that is uh, the woman who would eventually become his mistress, Diane de Poitiers. Diane starts out as something of a mother figure for Henry. Uh, She's 20 years older than him. She is already a mother in her own right. She has two daughters. And I think that the relationship began because Henry needed something of a mother figure. His own mother died when he was quite young. But then in his teens, after he actually gets married to Catherine, that relationship grows much more intimate. And eventually it does become a physical relationship. So any time that maybe he could have been spending with his wife, he's actually spending with Diane de Poitiers. So Catherine doesn't have very much going for her. What she does have going for her is that her father-in-law, the French king, Francis I, really likes her. And, you know, there are all sorts of reasons why this might be. Catherine is very intelligent. She's educated. I think she's a very compelling and charismatic person. She's quite adept at reading the room. And I think that she learned quite quickly what Francis liked. Francis was also very enamored of Italy, and um, Catherine really represented Italy. And once she saw her chance to get in with the French king, she took it. So he, in many ways, was a very strong ally of hers and um, quite protective of her. But the biggest problem that Catherine faces in the first 10 years of her marriage is that she does not succeed in conceiving, or if she does conceive, she loses those pregnancies very early on. There's a little bit of unclear evidence about whether she was not able to conceive at all or if she uh, lost the pregnancies. At the beginning, this was already a little bit of a problem, although since she was married at 14 and still quite young, the French court was willing to give her some time to mature. But after Henry becomes the heir to the throne, the pressure for her to have a child, to bear the next heir to the throne, becomes enormous, and Catherine uh, really has trouble with this. And at some point, there is 
rumors rumbling around the French court that she should be repudiated and sent back to Italy. Uh, But luckily, for a host of reasons, including the fact that Francis really did like her, he decided to stick with her. So eventually, after 10 years, Catherine is able to conceive and carry that pregnancy to term. And um, in 1544, she gives birth to a healthy baby. And luckily for her, it's a boy. So then her place at the French court is assured. And after this birth, how many children did Catherine go on to have? She goes on to have 10 children. In almost as many years, it's really, it's a complete reversal, a 180. And, you know, that that is never really explained. Later on, uh, you know, a number of different pundits and uh, especially fans of Catherine tried to explain it. They said, oh, this is the way of the Medici women. They conceive late, but then, you know, they have lots of babies. Who knows? There are a number of different reasons why her fertility might have suddenly taken off. Probably because there actually was a problem with Henry. He consulted a doctor, a very famous doctor at the time, named Jean Fernel, and they actually found um, some dysfunction in him. And once they fixed that, things seemed to go much more smoothly. And Catherine's biological children were not the only young presence in the French court at this time. Mary, Queen of Scots, intended as the bride of Catherine's son Francis, grew up alongside Elizabeth de Valois, as you said earlier, during her childhood. What was the relationship like between Mary and Elizabeth as girls? Okay, so Mary is five years old when she comes to the French court in 1548. So she is about uh, th- three or four years older than Elizabeth de Valois. And when Mary arrives, she's already the reigning queen of Scotland. Mary becomes the reigning queen of Scotland when she's nine days old. Um, so she outranks everybody else in the French nursery. And, and you have to understand that the French nursery is not only the French royal children. It's actually bustling with all sorts of noble and aristocratic children, not only from France, but also from across Europe. So Mary comes in. She's five years old. Um, she's older than all the other French royal children. And she really rules the roost. <laughs> Uh, not just because of her rank, but I think also physically. Mary, one of the striking things about Mary is uh, right away, everyone notices that she looks a little bit different from your average your average child. She's very tall. She's big boned like her family. And I think this gives her a physical presence um, that only adds to the allure that she already had as a reigning queen. So she comes in, she's about five years old, Elizabeth is two. She's already betrothed, at least unofficially, to the Dauphin or the future Dauphin, uh, Francis. And so her rank and her relationships to the French royal children are already defined. But then I think in a just sort of natural child way, she also is a little bit the bossy big sister you know, the sister who kind of knows everything. Uh, She's very charismatic. Um, I think she was quite verbal. She's quite adept uh, physically. And so um, I think quite early on that relationship between her and Elizabeth is established that Mary is like the older big sister and Elizabeth is like the younger sister who follows her around. 
This was probably encouraged also because Mary and Elizabeth shared a bedchamber from the time that Mary arrives in France. And uh, Mary was trained both by um, her French family, the Guises, and by the French royal family to call Elizabeth's sister. And Elizabeth was also encouraged and taught to call Mary sister. So they were really raised to think of each other as sisters. And I think that that natural big sister, little sister relationship developed from there. And you mentioned in your book that in the absence of Mary's mother, Marie de Guise, one of the people she would turn to for emotional tenderness during these times was Catherine. How close was their relationship? So th that is a really interesting question, and it's a question that actually on a larger scale has to do with how we look at history. Uh, one of the things that many women who are in positions of power in the 16th century is that we tend to look backwards. We know how the relationships ended up, and so we tend to look back, even in the early years of relationships, through the lens of how the relationships ended up later. So for instance, uh, Mary and Catherine later in their lives really didn't get along. <laughs> so it's easy to see evidence of perhaps animosity when Mary was younger and growing up at the French court. Um, but I, I think that if, if we can try to you know, put aside that later relationship and look um, at the relationship early on, you tend to see a little bit less evidence of it or any kind of friction you see doesn't seem necessarily out of the ordinary. When Mary first gets to court as a five-year-old, Catherine seems as enamored of her as everybody else. Mary, she seemed to be strikingly beautiful. Um, she was so healthy. She was very charming. And Catherine, who was quite close to Mary's mother, uh, seems to just take her in, just, just kind of embrace her. And there's lots of evidence that when uh, Mary was ill, for instance, with childhood illnesses. Catherine did more than her fair share to make sure that Mary was okay and even to take care of her. In fact, um, there is a letter by Mary's uncle, the Cardinal of Lorraine, to her mother, Mary of Guise, that talks about how Catherine stayed up all night at Mary's bedside during one of these childhood illnesses when, when Mary was quite ill. Uh, Mary really admired Catherine. Catherine was, a, was an excellent rider. She loved to ride. She was great at hunting, and Mary aspired to the same, and so she really looked up to Catherine in that way. And um, we also uh, suspect, strongly suspect, that Catherine um, taught Mary how to embroider. Catherine learned how to embroider uh, when she was in Les Murate, the convent, and she passed that uh, those skills along to her daughter, Elizabeth de Valois, and to Mary. And Mary would take that gift with her. Um, it would remain with her for the rest of her life. One of the things that Mary does later when she's imprisoned in England for 20 years is that whenever she was sad, uh, she would take to her embroidery. So to some, to some extent, that was a gift that Catherine gave her that she cherished for the rest of her life. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And Mary was soon to become related to Catherine through marriage. At the age of just 15, she's officially betrothed to her son, Francis. Days before this, Mary signs her name on three documents. Could you please explain what these entailed? Yes. This was France being extremely duplicitous about what this marriage was going to entail. So... Henry II is king at the time. Um, Francis is the Dauphin. He's two years younger than Mary. These are really teens, young teens, who are being betrothed and then um, going to be married. And although Mary, Queen of Scots, was the ruling Queen of Scotland since the time she was nine days old, she um, she really leaves the governing both to her mother and, to a certain degree, her Guise uncles. So, uh, you know, she's busy growing up. In France, she leaves the ruling to to the grown-ups. So shortly before the marriage, Henry II, and um, to all evidence, with the approval of the Guises, gets Mary to sign three secretive documents. And these documents were effectively created to hand over the Kingdom of Scotland to France if Mary should die without heirs of her body. Now, where the duplicity comes in is that um, at the time of the marriage, Scotland had sent deputies over to kind of make sure everything was above board and to make sure that France would ensure Scotland's independence. Scotland has an alliance with France and to some degrees under its protection, but it really is its own independent kingdom and it wants to maintain its autonomy. So they send the deputies to ensure that this happens and Henry and his son say, oh yes, don't worry, don't worry, you're independent. And if you know what, we're even going to work to make sure that you're even more independent than you already are. But behind the scenes, in the room where it happens, they get married to sign these three documents. So the first document stipulates that if she has no children, no heirs of her body, then the kingdom of Scotland will go to the French king, Francis, and his father, if the father, if Henry is still the French king at the time, and it will pass from the French king to the French king's heirs, even if those heirs come from another woman. So effectively, the kingdom of Scotland goes to France. In addition, Mary was also going to pass her right to the English throne over to the French king. So that's the first document. The second document, which seems to be an alternative to the first, gave the Kingdom of Scotland to France until the Kingdom of Scotland could repay France the vast sum of money that they owed France for the defense of Scotland. And the third document was really meant to assert Mary's rights to do what she wanted with the Kingdom of Scotland. So according to Scottish law, if anything happened to Mary, the right to determine Scotland's future would fall to a council of Scottish lords. But this third document stipulated that actually it was Mary's right to do what she wanted with the Kingdom of Scotland. So the third document is designed to validate the first two. 
So Henry really wanted to get his hands <laughs> on the Kingdom of Scotland. And actually, you know, even above board, he wasn't so secretive about this. He writes to Scotland and he demands that the crown of Scotland be shipped to France so that um, his son can be crowned with it. And the Scots say, oh, no, no, they definitely don't want that to happen. So then he softens the request a little bit and he says, okay, that's fine. But why don't you give Francis the crown matrimonial, which meant that Francis would rule co-jointly with Mary during, during her lifetime. So it wouldn't be that Mary was the sovereign queen and Francis was under her. It would mean that they would rule uh, jointly as monarchs. And the Scots agreed to this, but they never do ship the crown. And after the signing of this documentation, we arrive at the wedding of Mary and Francis. Can you provide some details of the extravagances enjoyed during this festivity? Yes, it was very extravagant. Until Elizabeth de Valois' wedding, it was kind of, uh, you know, the wedding of the century. And, you know, the Guise definitely had something to do with that. The Guise is, this is Mary's French family. You know, they are, they're super ambitious. They want to be in the limelight. They've raised Mary to want to be in the limelight. And they really take advantage of of this wedding. Mary's uncle, the Duke of Guise, is the marshal of ceremonies, and he makes sure that it's glorious. Uh, Mary herself wears all white, which was actually quite unusual at the time, so it really made her stand out. And uh, the wedding happens on the Ile de la Cité. The ceremony takes place in front of uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, and so it's visible to all. It's definitely a sort of celebrity event. And uh, after the wedding, there are huge displays of largesse. There's the coins, silver and gold thrown about such that there's this melee in order to grab them. And then there is a banquet. And at the banquet, you know, Mary, again, she's just beautiful and gorgeous. She's left her hair down and um, she dances with her sister-in-law, her new sister-in-law, Elizabeth de Valois. But at the banquet, there are all these displays um, of French imperial majesty, uh, giant paper mache boats with captains at their helm. And this is meant to symbolize uh, the future of the French empire, thanks to the new alliance with Mary. Because what the French really aspire to is not only the kingdom of Scotland, which now has been acquired through this marriage between Mary and the Dauphin Francis, but also through um, Mary's claim to the English throne, uh, they're, they're clearly aspiring to eventually um, you know, getting their hands on the Kingdom of England. And you've just mentioned there that Mary led the first dance alongside Elizabeth. And you also mentioned in your book that she was always close to her throughout the wedding. We've discussed their relationship as girls, but how close were these two women as they became older? Well, that is a very good question. <laughs> and again, I think it, you know, there, there's a question of duplicity. I would say that, you know, at best, there's real conflict between Mary and Elizabeth, and it has to do with the conflict that develops between political exigencies and any sort of natural affection. As they get older, and now in different kingdoms, Elizabeth, soon after her wedding, goes to the Kingdom of Spain. Mary stays in France for a little while, but eventually she's in Scotland. What happens is the relationship gets tested when politics and religion starts to interfere. 
And Elizabeth may have been close to Mary as a sister-in-law and as a childhood friend, but the person that she is really attached to, that Elizabeth is really attached to, is Catherine. And when Catherine decides that the family bond, the mother-daughter bond that she shares with Elizabeth has to take precedence over any kind of friendship that Elizabeth might feel for Mary, um, she makes sure that that happens. So in the end, Elizabeth and Mary are forced to grow apart because Elizabeth maintains her loyalty to Catherine over and above any kind of affection or loyalty she may have felt to Mary. And let's move on to Elizabeth's marriage to Philip II of Spain. How did this union come to be? To understand the importance of this marriage, you have to understand that France and Spain had been at war for years, uh, generations, in fact. The wars are intermittent, but they are ongoing for decades. And these wars are known as the Italian Wars, and they are part of the imperial ambitions of both Spain and France. They're called the Italian Wars because France and Spain are fighting for dominance in Italy. And it goes back and forth. You know, sometimes the French win, sometimes the Spanish win. No one wins definitively, and this is why the wars are ongoing. And to some degree, so many of the events in uh, these women's lives um, have to do with these Italian wars. So, for instance, the sack of Rome is an offshoot of the Italian wars, and that was the sack of Rome that landed Catherine in the convent of Le Marate. Well, it's the Italian wars, or rather the, Ital uh, the end of the Italian wars, that leads to Elizabeth de Valois' marriage. So, Henry II is king of France, Philip II is the new king of Spain, and um, Everybody, the two kings and their kingdoms, is uh, they're growing tired of the wars. Um, and Henry, for several reasons, is interested in ending them. First of all, his very, very close friend, mentor, and kind of the father that he never had, um, Anne de Montmorency, is captured by the Spanish in one of the episodes of the Italian Wars, and he's held a prisoner. And Henry is desperate to get him back. And the other problem that Henry is facing is that it's clear that the Protestant Reformation, which has really started to surge in France, isn't going away. Henry II was a very pious and very conservative Catholic, and he was very interested in eradicating um, any, any hint of French Protestantism um, to the point that he was considering something close to the Inquisition in France. But it's not going away. And he's increasingly starting to see these wars with Spain as a distraction and that he needs his, his money and his attention to go towards eradicating Protestantism. So in the fall of 1558, he and Philip finally come to agreement known as the Treaty of Cateau Cambrésis to end these wars. The sort of capstone on this particular peace treaty is that Elizabeth de Valois, um, the oldest daughter of Henry II, would marry a Spanish prince. And originally, she was slated to marry Philip's son, Don Carlos, who would become the heir to Spain. He's the Prince of Asturias. But in the fall of 1558, Philip II's wife, Mary Tudor, dies, Mary I of England. 
Elizabeth tries to contract a marriage with the new Queen of England, Elizabeth I, but Elizabeth says, no way, she's not going to marry him. So then Philip looks towards the new French peace and the French match, and he decides that instead of Don Carlos, he is going to become the husband of Elizabeth de Valois. And uh, that, to some degree, is quite an imbalanced marriage. Um, Elizabeth is only 13 at the time that this marriage is contracted, whereas Philip is 33 years old. Um, at the same time, I should say that that's more par for the course for aristocratic and royal marriages than not. Uh, to some degree, Catherine and Mary were quite lucky because they married boys their own age. And Mary, Queen of Scots, actually marries, marries a boy she's known practically her whole life. But Elizabeth is marrying um, a stranger, a man who's more than twice her age, and a man who, until quite recently, had been the detested enemy of her father. <laughs> so it must have been quite a shock for her to realize that this is what's going to happen. But it's essential right? She has no choice. This is part of the peace treaty. And like the good daughter she is, she will do her parents' bidding and go to Spain. And you've said that just how young Elizabeth was when she was married to Philip. How did she feel about this union? Uh, that's a great question. And I wish I could give you a definitive answer. Uh, you know, one of the, the challenges in uh writing about women in particular from so long ago, but also just, you know, anyone from the 16th century is that we just don't have as much access to their inner lives as we do in later centuries. Um, and certainly for a girl of this age, what she felt wasn't important. So no one wrote it down. <laughs> and, you know, there's nothing like a diary that she kept. Oh, you know, we'd love to have a diary or something like that. Um, so we don't really know how she felt. Certainly, from a political angle, she must have been quite happy because to some degree, you, you can't arrange a better marriage. You know, she's marrying a future king. She's going to become the queen consort of Spain. Um, Spain is a very Catholic kingdom, which, you know, of course, her parents would have approved of and Elizabeth herself would have approved of. And it's a very old and esteemed kingdom. So in that sense, it's quite an honor. And, you know, right away, the Spaniards treat her like a queen. They seem to try in good faith to put aside any old animosity and to respect her. So in that sense, it's really a wonderful match. But I just can't help but wonder if she wasn't afraid. I mean, she must have been afraid. Not to mention that she uh, was going to leave her family. And to all evidence, you know, Catherine and Henry were quite doting parents. And I, and I really want to emphasize that. And Catherine, I think partially because she was barren for, for 10 years, she just, she just pours attention on her children. But Henry also was a very doting father. And I think that is because he felt quite neglected by his own father. And um, so instead he turns around and he does what he can for his own children. So Elizabeth is, is the first child to really leave home. She's only 13 years old. She probably was already suffering from some health problems. And she's going to this, you know, to this foreign kingdom with no promise that she'll ever see any of her family again. So that, that had to be quite scary. And then you know, soon thereafter is the tragedy that would kind of define these women's lives for the next several decades. Um, and so uh, that certainly cast a pall over her departure for Spain. 
And you mentioned just how close Elizabeth and Catherine were as mother and daughter. How much communication was there between the two women once Elizabeth had left the French court? There is a ton of communication. What's really amazing about Catherine is she was such a prolific letter writer. I honestly don't know how she did it. She wrote a lot of letters herself. She dictated letters. She had her secretaries write letters for her, and then she would sign them. But she just wrote letter after letter after letter. And we know so much about her, and to the degree that we do about about her daughter and about a lot of politics in the time, because she was such a prolific writer. So Catherine missed Elizabeth right away. She really loved this young girl, and she missed her terribly. And so she started writing to her right away, partially out of affection, partially because she's so nervous about how Elizabeth is going to perform as Queen of Spain, partially because she's worried about her, both because she's young and because Elizabeth seems to have some chronic illnesses. And so she really wants to keep tabs on this young woman. And can we just go back slightly? I think you started to touch upon it earlier, that just eight days after Elizabeth's marriage, her father and Catherine's husband, Henry II, suffers a terrible accident. Could you please explain to listeners who aren't familiar with this what happened to Henry? Henry is thrilled with the wedding, Elizabeth to Philip. He's thrilled that there will be peace. He is very eager to impress the Spanish. Uh, I almost think he kind of wants to become friends with Philip. Henry, at the time, he's 40 years old. He's still very much a warrior king. He's athletic. And he decides that for this wedding, he's going to have tournaments. He's going to have jousts. Um, And that shows you the degree of importance to this wedding. Because for Mary, Queen of Scots' wedding, even though it was beautiful and splendid and just spectacular, they decided not to have tournaments or jousts because the wars were still ongoing. So it was it was seen as inappropriate. But for Elizabeth, they're going to have tournaments and jousts. And Henry decides that he wants to run the tilt himself. It's very hot. It's a Friday. It's five o'clock in the afternoon. The tournament has been going on all day and Henry has actually already run the tilt several times and so he's quite tired. But he decides he wants to run the tilt one more time against the Count of Montgomery. Now this is his second time against the Count of Montgomery and he's already lost, but maybe because, you know, he was embarrassed, he decides he wants to run one more time. And people tried to dissuade him from doing it, but he doesn't listen. So he runs against the Count of Montgomery, and there are two problems. The first is that something is wrong with Henry's visor on his helmet, and no one knows exactly what happened. If he had forgotten to lower his visor, if somehow it was broken, but for some reason it wasn't shielding him properly. And the second thing that happens is the Count of Montgomery, who was quite a young soldier and a little bit inexperienced, forgets to drop his lance. Once they ma- he makes contact with Henry, he should have dropped his lance, but he doesn't do it. And so instead, the pressure breaks the lance and splinters fly everywhere. And a splinter somehow hits Henry and bores a hole right into his head above his right eye. Um, Almost immediately, there's chaos. Henry is brought um, to try to recuperate the despair of his life for a few days. He seems to recover, but then infection sets in, and 10 days after the accident, Henry dies. 
As you've just said, he dies not long afterwards on the 10th of July. The king's death was clearly a huge turning point in history. But what did it mean more personally for these three women? It is a turning point, And it's amazing how one faulty visor can change everything. So the first thing that, you know, happens is that Mary, Queen of Scots, along with her husband, Francis, are now the king and queen of France. And they're just teenagers and they're entirely unprepared. You know, Francis is quite young. He hasn't even gone through puberty yet. He's just really a boy and he's been quite sickly. To some degree, it's truly putting children on the throne of France. And so Mary is suddenly thrust in this position where she has to be the queen consort. For her, um, even though personally she doesn't necessarily exert a tremendous amount of power on the reign, her uncles, the Guises, adopt the roles as chief advisors. And so they bring Mary along in their wake. So so Mary and her extended family, the Guises, are put in a sort of unprecedented uh, position of power, certainly much more powerful than they had enjoyed before, even though they were very important advisors before. But on a personal level for Mary, again, it, it must have been extremely frightening for her, as it was for Francis, to suddenly be put in this position entirely unanticipated. Um, for Elizabeth... You know, again, this could only have added to the anxiety she must have already felt um, in her departure for Spain, because now there's a different sort of pressure on the marriage. Soon after Henry's accident, one of Philip's advisors came to speak with him when he was still lucid. Um, he could still speak, even though he was he was bedridden and, and you know trying to recover to make sure that the treaty, the peace treaty, would still hold, because that was actually put into doubt. With if Henry was going to die they didn't know if war would resume between France and Spain or if the marriage would still hold. So for several days, Elizabeth must have felt a lot of anxiety about whether or not she was still married or what was going to happen to her. And then, you know, once the marriage was assured, there was new pressure on her um, within Spain to succeed as queen because they needed to keep that peace treaty alive, particularly because with the death of Henry II, the religious situation in France does get more volatile. And the French um, are very interested in keeping Philip, the very Catholic king of Spain, happy so that he doesn't turn around and wage war on France because that is, you know, they can't afford to have that happen. So, but Elizabeth is also racked with sadness at the death of her father. And we do have one letter that she writes from the road, actually, when she's on her um, way to Spain, where she's clearly still mourning the death of her father. Her father was supposed to escort her to the border, where then she was going to be you know, fetched by Philip's deputies, um, and he can't do that. So that should have been a last goodbye, but instead she never really gets that last goodbye. And then for Catherine, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, I can only say it's a mixture of despair and utter grief and anxiety and foreboding uh, for the future. So as I mentioned much earlier, you know, Catherine really did love Henry, or at least she always claimed to. Um, she really did love Henry. And in one letter to Elizabeth, she says that her one regret about her marriage is that she wasn't loved by her husband as much as she had loved him. 
that was her that was her one regret. But she certainly respected and honored him, and she wanted to continue to do so throughout her widowhood. But she's also terrified for her son, Francis because she knows he's unprepared for the throne. So there's just this turmoil of grief um, and despair for her, because on the one hand, she's so upset that her husband has died, but she's also extremely afraid for what's gonna happen to the kingdom of France, and particularly for her son, as well as for her other children, because her other children, the daughters, but also the sons are quite young, and royal children, are actually very vulnerable as potential pawns for anyone trying to stir up trouble in the kingdom. And so Catherine is really interested in protecting them so they don't get sort of mixed up or used by anybody who might want to stir up trouble, whether that's religious or political in the kingdom. There's just a number of things going on at once. And that may be one reason why she ultimately decides, actually quite quickly, within a few days of Henry's death, to uh, prefer the title of queen mother rather than dowager queen because she wants to emphasize the fact that she is the mother to the royal children, including the king, and that she's going to insist on this sort of protective role in order to shelter her children and, and therefore help in sort of maintaining the stability of the kingdom. Henry II's death ended an era of over a decade in which these three women lived together in the French court. Finally, how do you think their time together affected how each one approached both their lives as royals and their lives as women as they grew older? For Catherine, she definitely has a certain scale on which she is weighing familial and political loyalty. And so even though she seems to have gotten along with Mary, Queen of Scots, when Mary was a young child, um, she really does quite astutely recognize that Mary is going to be a guise first before she is even the queen consort or Spain or the loyal daughter-in-law to Catherine. And eventually Catherine will grow to distrust the Guises. And with that distrust of the Guises, she will grow to distrust Mary. So you know, she, she, if you could say she had a way of sort of measuring, um, you know, various different loyalties, in the end, she is not going to give any kind of previous bond she might have um, felt with Mary any, any real political weight. On the contrary, there, she never really questions um, the love and loyalty that she feels for Elizabeth and that she expects Elizabeth to um, return. And, and, and that's that's sort of an interesting point. I mean, I, I do believe that these women really loved each other, but there is also this strain of filial piety and filial expectation that Catherine exerts um, um, that puts a lot of pressure on her relationship with Elizabeth. Catherine never doubts that Elizabeth is going to be loyal to her, and she makes it clear to Elizabeth that she never doubts that Elizabeth is going to be loyal to her. And, you know, I think that I don't want to question the sincerity of her love for Elizabeth at all, but I do feel like that strain is always present in all of her letters to Elizabeth throughout the years. And because of that, uh, and because of the, the genuine affection she felt for Elizabeth, she could be assured of her daughter's loyalty. Um, and as for Elizabeth and Mary, 
You know, for some reason, we don't have a lot of evidence of the correspondence between these two women once they part ways. Later, there is um, certainly a brief correspondence, and there must have been letters that went back and forth between them um, from the time that Elizabeth left for Spain um, and eventually Mary goes to Scotland and Elizabeth's death, but they haven't survived. And it's also possible that it was quite intermittent, a little bit like childhood friendships. You know, you get older, you move on with life, you get married, you have children, and those childhood friendships fade away. That might have happened to some degree, whereas Catherine's correspondence with Elizabeth, you know, was always ongoing. So in the end, Elizabeth was always going to choose her mother at any political loyalties that that entailed over any kind of allegiance to Mary. That was Leia Redmond Chang, the author of Young Queens, Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power, which is out now published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.